Hey, listener, KZMU News had to take an unexpected break this week, but we still met with our amazing media partners. So we have the weekly newsreel. Let's get into it and check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Utah Governor Spencer Cox is proposing a $185 million investment in housing. Gwen Dilworth of the Times Independent has more on what that could mean for Grand County. Utah Governor Spencer Cox released his budget proposals for the coming fiscal year, which starts next summer. Um, So these are proposals that will be voted on by state lawmakers in the coming session in January. Um, And he proposed a $185 million investment in housing. That's kind of the centerpiece of his his budget proposal for this year. He's really prioritizing Mm -hmm. housing. Seems to be like the most important thing on the docket for the coming year. So Governor Cox proposes this budget and a significant chunk of it goes to housing. Why is that important to his administration? Yeah, he actually said the single greatest threat to the prosperity of our state is the price of a home, which is a pretty bold statement. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we're seeing that in Grand County, too, where the median home price is, you know, much higher than the state average even. So Mm -hmm. if this is a problem in the state, it's an even greater problem in the county. And so you talked to some local folks, right? Yeah, I did. I talked to Ben Riley of Mm -hmm. the Housing Authority of Southeastern Utah um, to kind of get his takes on what the plan Mm -hmm. means for Grand County. And while it's, you know, too soon to say what it'll mean tangibly for the county, he said that the governor is really highlighting some, some important points in housing um, including first-time homebuyers programs, community mm-hmm. land trusts, which we've seen right. um, as something that's very successful here. Um, and the governor even shouted out Moab in his press statement. Oh, wow. Okay. And low-interest loans for public infrastructure that supports housing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that groundwork that's important to get all these homes online. <laughs> right. Okay. So Ben Riley, who's at the Housing Authority of Southeastern Utah, said that the governor has been supportive of programs like his and others. Has there been this type of financial support before? Some aspects of Governor Hawks's proposals are building off of ones that came last year, like the right. first-time homebuyers program. Mm-hmm. But other ones are new, like the support for community land trusts. Mm -hmm. And one thing that Riley highlighted was just that Governor Cox's proposals try to build affordable housing for folks who are in um, kind of a workforce range of income. So Mm -hmm. 80% of average median Mm -hmm. income or higher. Mm -hmm. Um, So folks who might not have had access to a government subsidy for housing before, but now they might be able to buy their first home. Right. And Ben, did he have anything to say about um, how this could affect Grand County? Yeah, I think that it would, you know, continue to support these affordable housing programs like mm-hmm. Hasu's work on Arroyo Crossing mm-hmm. and Community Rebuilds, their work, um, their sweat equity housing programs. Um, but he did kind of note that um, there is a barrier for Grand County to access these funds mm-hmm. um, in that it's rural, it's far away from the state legislature. Sometimes it's hard to know how to use these funds um, to help people. Right. Okay, more on that story in this week's edition of The Times Independent. And where do you want to take us next, Gwen? Sure. Um, Moabite Annie Dalton was named 2024 Community Artist in the Parks. She's a local artist, and she'll be making art in arches and canyonlands and natural bridges and Havana Weave uh, National Monuments um, in the coming year. 
Amazing. Okay, Annie Dalton is a familiar name. She grew up here, is that right? Correct. She was born here and, and moved away and lived all over the Southwest mm-hmm. before okay. returning to Moab. Okay. Yeah. And do we know like what her medium is? Like, What is she going to be exploring out there this year? Yeah, Annie is a ceramicist and she is also a two-dimensional artist. Her work in the parks will focus on 2D art, specifically a series that focuses on native plants um, and kind of Mm. seeks to educate folks about what these plants are that are in our environment. (laughs) Oh, that's really cool. Every artist comes with like a different sort of spin or like intention to their residency. Yeah, she plans to have two notebooks, one for rocks and one for plants, she told me. (laughs) Amazing. So um, the Community Artists in the Park program, anything to say about how that works? Yeah, the Community Artists in the Park works for 24 hours a month in the park from April to October. And they're out there making art and interacting with guests. So Mm -hmm. speaking with visitors, Annie in particular told me she plans to bring, you know, a field guide with her so that she and visitors can identify the plants that they're seeing um, as they move through the parks. Amazing. All right. Anything else that from your interview that you um, (laughs) thought was fun or interesting about Annie in particular? (laughs) Annie has been making art in the parks for a long time, she told me. She moved back um, to the area after college. Mm -hmm. She was working on a series about seashells, and she realized that the rocks, the sandstone in the in arches in particular, really mirrors uh, the texture of seashells. Wow. I thought that was really uh, astute. <laughs> wow. So moving on, um, there's one more piece we want to highlight in the Times Independent, and uh, this is an article that Doug McMurdo wrote. What's up with a couple of our high school students? Yeah, two of our uh, state championship high school athletes um, signed their national letters of intent to ex- accept scholarships for college this week. Those athletes are Cadence Kasbrick, who is a runner. Uh, she'll be competing in cross country and track and field at Oregon State University in Corvallis next year. Um, and Mackenzie Meyer, who will compete as a triathlete for Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. Wow. So two student athletes who, um, you know, are going to be playing for their universities. That's amazing. Congrats to those students. Super exciting. Gwen Dilworth, reporter with The Times Independent. Find more stories at moabtimes.com. A new system of hiking and biking trails will open up access to a historic area at Dead Horse Point State Park. Allison Harford has more from the Moab Sun News. So Jim Wells first worked at Dead Horse Point State Park as a ranger in 2016. And that season, he proposed a project that would have placed an interpretive historic sign near this piece of old hauling infrastructure above this really spectacular viewpoint. Like anyone who's been a dead horse knows that all the views there are amazing. Yeah. Um, but this is one that a lot of people haven't seen before just because like it hasn't been open. So that project didn't take off in 2016, but um, Jim Wills came back this summer to Dead Horse as a park manager and his top priority was opening that viewpoint to visitors. Mm. So this new system of hiking and biking trails, which will total between five and six miles, will open um, access to that historic point in the summer of 2024. So it'll add to this existing trail system, which has over 16 miles of single track mountain biking trails. And these trails aren't designed to be really crazy bike trails. They're more just Mm. like 
meant to open up this area to people who want to go see it. Mm. And these bike trails are going to be on old mining roads um, to have as little impact as possible. And they still have to be approved by the State Historic Preservation Office and go through a public comment period. But then when they're approved, they'll be kind of built out by volunteers. Oh, interesting. And I think in Dunhorse, e-bikes are allowed on the trails as well, right? Right. Yeah. So that'll be true for this area too. Okay. So this old hauling equipment that is going to be, I guess, at the like pinnacle of the trail. What's up with that? What does it look like? Where does it come from? Yeah. So it's kind of connected to the Intrepid Potash Mine. Um, So this hauling equipment was made in like the early 1950s. And in that time, Utah was producing a ton of oil, like the oil industry really took off. Um, And so there was a well made by Americold Petroleum called Mason Number no. 1, and it was one of the first in this area that was commercially viable. Mm. Um, but at the time, there were no roads to this well site because Potash Road hadn't been built yet. And so supplies and equipment were brought there by boat on the Colorado River. But of course, that was like pretty dangerous, like boats could sink and everything. Mm. So this hauling equipment was made to be able to pull resources out of that mine. Um, it was really difficult to like get mining equipment down the Colorado River River on boat and of course if those boats sank then you like lost all of your equipment too um so better to kind of put that equipment up above the mine so that you could pull it like up and over basically wow it's so interesting I'm, I'm reminded of a memoir that local Robert Buckingham wrote about his childhood in Moab and mm-hmm. apparently his dad at one point had a job at the mine or like building the mine and he traveled by boat oh wow <laughs> to go to the mine yeah so I guess that was how people traveled back then because there wasn't really a road there yeah definitely yeah it seems like the road came much later mm-hmm. um and so before that you had to kind of do all these really creative ways to like get people there and Mm -hmm. get mining equipment out and stuff like that oh interesting okay so this trail is is coming online it's gonna be a bike trail does it have a name no name (laughs) yet (laughs) i think um yeah that'll probably come later hopefully when it's created i'm assuming he'll want to get all of the approvals like all his ducks in a row before giving it a new name Okay, awesome. Anything else to highlight in that piece that Rachel wrote? Yeah, Rachel kind of draws the conclusion that tourism has become this dominant economic driver in the Moab area, but it still exists alongside industries like ranching and mining. Mm -hmm. And so this point, they're going to call it Potash Point, TBD on the trail names, but Potash Point will be the name of this area. Um, And that's one place where she says visitors can ponder how these activities overlap in place and time. It is really true in the state park, especially because even if you just go out to the Dead Horse Point viewpoint, you can mm-hmm. see, you know, evaporation pools amidst the landscape. So, yeah, great place to ponder all of that mm-hmm. stuff. Definitely. <laughs> okay, there's more in the Moabs and news. Where do you want to take us next, Allie? Yeah, so the city of Moab has finally adopted a sustainability action plan. So the city has never actually had a long-term sustainability plan in place, which is surprising because we do have a lot of little policies that relate to sustainability, like how we have paper bags at the grocery stores, stuff like that. And so creating this sustainability master plan is kind of a big move for the city. Mm -hmm. Um, There have been a lot of attempts to do this in the past. Like in 2009, the city adopted 
a plan called 2020 Vision, a mm-hmm. sustainable Moab plan, but that obviously only went up to 2020. And then in 2019 and 2021, past sustainability directors tried to create and pass a sustainability action plan, mm-hmm. but it never really got past that draft stage. Wow. Um, yeah, so for it to be finalized is pretty cool. Okay, so it has been, as you outlined, a long time coming for this sustainability plan. Mm-hmm. You know, what does it, does it hold the city to making policy or creating change? Like, what is in there? And are there directives? Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so I talked with Alexi Lamb, who's currently the sustainability director. Um, And I asked her, like, why the having a plan was important versus just kind of creating these like one-off policies Mm. um and she said that this planning process really helps inventory like community interest and community needs and so there have been a lot of surveys and it pulls together a lot of things that people said during this big visioning process Mm. that the city just went through Mm -hmm. so it divides all these goals into six topic areas which are like energy efficiency um, renewable energy and buildings transportation nature and ecosystems and water is one of those two and then it has pretty specific goals so one of the goals that Alexi thinks the city will be able to reach more easily is um, they want to achieve a 100% renewable electricity supply community-wide by 2030 and that is part of the Utah Renewable Communities Coalition sure Mm -hmm. so there's like a lot of resource resources to be able to do that there's already like funding in place Mm -hmm. and that's already kind of on its way Mm -hmm. but another one that might be challenging is this goal of hitting an 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2040 and that one Alexi said will require a lot of like partnerships like maybe with um our landfills Mm -hmm. and kind of trying to create like municipal compost and more infrastructure for electric vehicles and things like that that'll require a lot more work and multiple projects it sounds like yeah definitely yeah Yeah, so all of these um goals kind of then lay out individual projects that'll have to happen like the city wants to create a transportation electrification plan which will identify specific policies to prepare for this like EV adoption and higher charging demand. And then the city is also working pretty hard to achieve a certification to the International Dark Skies Association in 2024 which is obviously next year. All right. So there's multiple components. And as you said, like the city can, you know, set policy around them. What about landscaping? Yeah. So that's another hot topic because the city's been working on this like landscaping Mm -hmm. ordinance um, for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely part of the plan too, which is this ordinance to push new developments to use less grass and Mm -hmm. plant more native plants and just generally use um, less water. So there are a lot of ordinances in here that will kind of impact residents but city staff also talked about kind of the ways that they're gonna patrol these ordinances and Mm. make sure that people are coming into compliance our code enforcement is complaint based so they're gonna rely on that for a while and still do like complaint based code enforcement um but eventually especially with kind of this new dark skies ordinance that's gonna happen and with the landscaping ordinance um there will be more ways that the city can like 
double check that people are complying with that. Did the city council have anything to say about finally passing a sustainability plan after so long? Yeah, they're all very excited about it. Um, A lot of them have seen this process for a really long time. And it's great that the city is now able to have this document that they can go back to whenever they want to set more sustainable policy. Alexi mentioned that she wanted to recognize all the people who have been involved because the sustainability office is only two people. It's Mm. her and an AmeriCorps Vista. And so in order for this to happen, it kind of took the entire community. Okay. And people can read the sustainability plan online. Yeah. Is it linked on Moabs and News? Yeah, you can find it online. Right now, the best link is through the city's agenda center. Um, it's linked in the city council meeting and we'll also link it online in my article. Okay. And before we go, Allie, I want listeners to know that this might be your very last newsreel. Right. With KZMU and the Moms and News. So yes. tell us why. What are you about to go do? Yeah, so starting in early January, I am going to be working as an editorial fellow for Sierra Magazine. So I will still be in town and definitely still writing about local science and wildlife and public lands in the West um, just for a different outlet. Are you so excited? Yes, I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think you're going to get to write about um, for Sierra Magazine? I mean, definitely environmental science and climate change, which I'm really, really interested in. And I would love to bring to light more of how climate change is impacting like rural communities like ours. Mm. Um, So definitely thinking about developing a beat based in the West and desert rural communities. That's really exciting. I'm so happy for you. And also, thank you so much for being here every single week (laughs) that we text you and ask you, hey, can you come up again this week? Yeah. Every single week for what? Um, How many years? Like two and a half. Oh, my God. It's been amazing. And you do such a great job. So, you know, consider your career in radio in the future. But also, you know, touche on your (laughs) magazine career that you're about to launch. It's really exciting. Thank you. I think um, it's been really fun doing journalism in this community that cares so deeply about it. Mm. And also, I think a lot of my success is based in all the people who have talked to you in this community who have been so kind to me and answered all my questions in all of my interviews. Allison Hartford, reporter with the Moab Sun News. Find more stories at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes on our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU Community Powered Radio.